Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambi peoples and the Wathaurong people of the Kulin Nation, past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you still from our bedrooms. I'm your familiar stranger today, Matt, together with my familiar strangers, Alex DeLoya. Hello. Carolyn West. Hi. And Ronan Chen. Hello. Before we dive into today's discussion, do you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on The Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. Carolyn, what are you thinking about this week? Well, Matt, last week I actually attended my very first bachelorette party. Woo-hoo. It was. Yeah, woo! <laughs> Kill me! <laughs> there were about 26 of us. So very large group of people and as far as I'm aware I was the only person who wasn't a cis woman at the bachelorette party and we had dinner at a lovely restaurant in Richmond and then we went to gay bar where the bride and the bridesmaids were roasted by some drag queens so we have like these very opposing heteronormative and queer spaces that the group were operating in and I was really interested that For me, as a queer, non-binary person, as soon as I walked into the gay bar, I felt such a wave of ease wash over me, even though I was still with the same people, but just in a new space that felt more familiar. Have you you guys all visited gay bar, like, multiple times? My limited experience, like, I went to gay bar back in the UK once, or maybe a couple of times. A couple times, but always with gay friends. Yeah, I don't know. Like, so when I used to work at a pub back in Manchester, back in the day, the glorious days of 2008, I worked at a pub, not in the gay village, but we as a group tended to go out in the gay village. Uh, We did have one queer staff member, but in all honesty, like, we largely did it because the gay village in Manchester at the time, I don't know nowadays, it was just kind of known as an area where shit didn't kick off. Manchester used to be probably still is had a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a rough town um and you know a lot of the rough people tended to be kind of homophobic and so tended to stay away from the gay village now that's of course like massively problematic in its own way because it kind of becomes a bit of a like a heteronormative invasion of a queer space at the same time like it was really one of the best like the the village was one of the best places to go out like, it just was legit more fun than... A, not, there were some other good bars in Manchester, but it was one of the good areas Better where music. you could consistently have a good night. Better music. Yeah, Alex. and it was just more mm. chill. Like, mm. high energy, but also relaxed. Lots of other places in Manchester, like, I used to always have to keep attention to, like, were any guys looking for a fight in a pub? Like, you just kind of always had to be... Interesting. ...on guard. Were there other things that you felt like made regular bars more heteronormative feeling rather than the queer bars that you were going to Alex aside from this impending 
aggressive masculinity. <laughs> hmm. Jesus. Like, but to be clear, you're racking my brains from what, what's this, 15 years ago? So. Well, we've got to go out to one of Canberra's best queer bars when I come back to town then. Clearly. Are or there, I'll... Uh, Canberra's a small town, Matt. Are there multiple? I've, uh, not, got, I've not gone out in Canberra much. Big shocker, a straight cis heteronormative man has no idea about the number of gay bars in Canberra. What I found interesting about what you just said, Carolyn, was that you said that you felt instantly more comfortable in this space, even though you were with the same group of people. Have you considered why that was? That's exactly what I'm going to ask too. Like, what's the what are the elements that make you feel at ease in that space other than other pubs or bars? So I think I'll start with the least obvious answer to that. And I think the first part is that one, when we were having dinner, we were actually the only ones in the restaurant. We had booked out the entire restaurant. So it was just us. So this whole space was just filled with women, essentially. And I was very nervous going into that space anyway. And I already felt like a gay bar was somewhat more familiar, even though I'd never been to this one before, just because I knew my people would be there. You know what I mean? So there was this expectation going to the bar that sort of, predicated me actually physically being there. What I thought was really, really interesting that I picked up on, because I could not help myself but anthropologize the situation, of course, as we all do, um, the symbolism that made me feel comfortable. So when you walk right in, there's a pride flag, you know, the door person was wearing glitter. They were just like these little things that instantly kind of just made me feel like, oh yes, okay, I'm here now, thank you, welcome. People were just very, very nice. Um, and that is a comment that I have heard other queer people in Melbourne say quite often is that they feel like the queer scene here, it's different everywhere you go, but here in Melbourne, the queer scene here is people are very, very friendly and willing to speak to strangers as opposed to in heteronormative spaces, which is something that I've also uh, experienced. There was an ad for Kylie Minogue wines on the TVs, <laughs> which is... That sounds like a terrible wine. Instantly. Which is, no yeah. Way. How Very, you, Alex? I did not know she had <laughs> like a you? wine, uh, like a wine label at all. But I was very much like, mm, tell me you're in a gay bar without telling me you're in a gay bar kind of vibes. And I should say though that this like this gay bar that we went to particularly, it was much more for older gay men than the places that I normally frequent. Uh, it's kind of the that sort of like older generation of queers that go there, whereas the newer spaces that I go into now are completely different and would probably feel very foreign to the people who would frequent that bar. But it's also the music that was being played as well. Just, I don't know what it is. Like, it's just, you know, the pride lists on Spotify. It's just these these anthems that have just come into being and people play it. You're like, yeah, that's a bit camp. Like, and it just makes you feel comfortable for some reason. Well, let's be clear, it made you feel comfortable. I think it touches on a question. What makes things gay mm. you know like when yeah. you touched on this previous like you mentioned you know the kyle Minogue ad for the wine and all, all these sort of things that put you at ease when you walked into the mm. gay bar but my question i think my overarching question is what makes something quote-unquote gay or queer or however we'd like to label it <sighs> that is a really good question <laughs> and i think so many people will have a different relationship to these things as well I mean, Kylie is like a gay icon. So she's like synonymous with gay culture at this point. Uh, just like kind of Dua Lipa really exploded in the gay community, especially after she performed at Mardi Gras a couple of years ago in Sydney. There's sort of like a cultural 
coding that exists in these sorts of things in artworks in music in in clothing so these things don't have to be queer or camp or anything for everyone but within the queer community they hold a certain value a certain identification i suppose yeah but i mean that's the thing right like it's not like these objects or people are somehow inherently queer straight whatever whatever It's that question of how they're inscribed and how they can be multiply inscribed. And the reason I say this is ages ago, Ricky Martin came out as gay, right? Super famous. But I happened to be in Bolivia, which I think legitimately was the last country in the world that realized this. I mean, I remember catching it on the Bolivian news and a whole lot of Bolivians being like, oh my God. And I was like, I thought this was just like public knowledge. I didn't even know he had to come out. But because of the cultural context... Like, there was not that association there. There was a whole debate about it. it hadn't been done. He was mm. just, like, a famous, excellent, dancing, handsome male singer. And, like, that is a perfectly normal, reasonable, hetero- heterosexual thing to be. No doubts. And so, whereas for the rest of the world, like I said, I, I didn't even know he wasn't straight when I went. If that makes sense. Like, I didn't know he had to yeah. officially answer. Because due to the, these relative contexts... Like what Ricky Martin had been inscribed with—that's a weird way of putting it. He was, was adopted quite by the gay community <laughs> <laughs> before before he came out. I mean, this is this is not like an uncommon thing. I like before I sort of realized that I was queer. A lot of my friends were also queer. We kind of all gravitated towards each other, and now most of my friends and people in my life and the artists I really love and like the music that I enjoy listening to and all of these things is very, very queer. And I did not curate it in that sense. I was just like automatically drawn to it. It's like to bring TikTok into the podcast as I always have to do Mm -hmm. uh, with the way that the TikTok algorithm works. There's sort of like this inside joke where it's like the TikTok algorithm, algorithm kind of knows you before you may know yourself. So you might find yourself on gay TikTok just because you happen to like the same things that the gay community like. Uh, and that can, of course, send you down an identity rabbit hole that you never really knew that you wanted to go down. But I think, like, yeah, there are these things that we kind of, like, communities, different types of communities kind of, like, hold on to. And sometimes it's ironic in the sense that someone like Ricky Martin, who was very popular in the queer community already came out as queer much later uh, in life, despite already sort of being very much part of the community. I think some other artists who probably have similar stories is like like Lady Gaga, um, Demi Lovato, um, who was bisexual, and then they also came out as uh, non-binary a couple years ago. Um, and these, all of these names are like massive in the community. For mm. sure. But I'm not talking about these people as people just for a minute. I'm talking oh, about the more icons. symbols as icons as and how icons. they get yeah, they and can also- be multiply inscribed. Yeah. Sorry, right. you said the Got word you. inscribed a while ago, and so now I can't use any other word than inscribed. But how <laughs> they can be multiply inscribed in different contexts. And I think yeah. that in large part, I reckon, ties into a lot of your experience about how you were in spaces that meant very different things to you than it meant to those around you. I assume it's probably more about placemaking and gender. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, because like all these elements, like what Matt asked is like, what makes you feel gay or queer? 
like、mm-hmm. uh, what factors kind of like gave you identity? All these elements you talked in the restaurant of the color, the the decoration, the name of the cocktails, and all the IG low low IG food. Uh, Sunday brunch, white girls sit together having、IG、a、galleys. chat. Yeah, IG <laughs> galleys. Yeah, so it's kind of like a really directly attached to this gender expectation, like I just said, gender expectation of female. Yeah, yeah. This, from the society and、But、the way also- the way you perform in those spaces as well,、mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. That like the the gender performance is sort of required to feel at ease, to feel like that space is. Is made for you because, like, all the restaurants are a really good way to talk about this because all restaurants have a very different kind of feeling and、mm-hmm. vibe when you walk in and an identity, and that is like brought right through from sort of what the interior design is, the fonts, like we were talking about earlier, the types of food that's on the menu. Like, if you're if you're a vegan and you walk into a steak restaurant, you're going to know from the sounds, the smells, the fact that the the grill is like. In the middle, it's the focal point of the bar.、Um, the the types of fonts that are used, that sort of thing. So, I think like these restaurants and cafes do a really good job of evoking this sense of this certain sense of. Sometimes it might be like a gender performativity, but sometimes it also might be like a specific kind of like job performativity. If you're going to a more like upper class, class. like yeah, class performativity, dictation. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas But, the gay bar obviously was the op- like the opposite to the restaurant. It was it it still demanded a certain sense of comfortability. But、uh, at the same time, that was a that was a sort of、um, that was a level of performability that I was more comfortable with because I identify more with that space as opposed to the restaurant space. As much as we have to say on this topic, unfortunately, we do have to move on. So, Alex, what are you thinking about this week? Look, I, I'm thinking about what I think a lot of the world is thinking about at the moment. I've been obsessively refreshing the ABC Live blog on Russian invasion of the Ukraine, and it's kind of wild for more reasons than we can get into in a single podcast. Thinking about that kind of obsessive refreshing, catching all sorts of analyses and things, it got me kind of thinking about the quote unquote truth, because so much of the discussion has been about. Attempts by Vladimir Putin and the Russian regime, a little more specifically, to try and really twist the narrative.、Um, the U.S.、Uh, NATO, more broadly, but the U.S. did something quite unusual at the start of all this, in that they were really like putting a lot of their moderately classified information out into public domain, like specific satellite imagery of troop buildups,、um, like. Course, they didn't say where they got information, but like you know, sources are saying this invasion is definitely coming. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. The sort of stuff that the the U.S. security establishment normally wants to keep its cards a little closer to its chest because it doesn't want other people to work out how they know what they know. And yet, I think that from a political strategic standpoint, which we don't want to talk about on this podcast, really flat-footed the Russians, right? Like. They got no traction with their narrative, just none. We haven't even seen the level of, at least for us in Australia, and I think a lot of the rest of the world. I think this is different in some countries. We haven't even seen the level of misinformation we saw around like the Trump election, right? And so that makes me wonder about how do we kind of construct truth? 
truth in the sense of everyone knowing and kind of agreeing this thing is true. And there are countries, Russia and I suspect maybe China and probably other places I can't think of, that at the moment have different truths, are probably living different truths to a moderate to to large extent. Yeah, but how do we societally construct truths? So specifically on this topic about truth and and what society deems as truthful, there was a rumour going around of a a pilot, an ace pilot, Uh, And they called him the ghost of Kiev. (laughs) And, you know, it's such a cool, right? It's It's it's, a good tagline. It's a cool tagline. It's a cool, cool call sign, right? Apparently he was an ace pilot that shot down seven seven Russian fighters or shot down a certain number of Russian planes and uh, aircraft. And so the internet started singing this man's praise and, and grainy, grainy footage of planes flying by and, and planes going down and, you know, always being like the ghost of Kiev strikes again or, you know, so on, like the ghost of Kiev is this and this and this. Over the course of the conflict, they became an, a cult hero. They became a symbol of resistance for the Ukrainians. This folk hero, the ghost of Kiev, became truth for a lot of the Ukrainians that are living and suffering in this war. And it gave the people fighting a lot of hope. And, you know, it's, it's been some people have said, no, this is not real. This is just this is an urban legend, this and that. But at the end of the day, I feel like the Ukrainians have rallied around this image of, you know, this ghost of Kiev, this ace pilot. They've rallied around it and it gives them hope. And I feel as though, is there really much more necessary in, in a war? Like, you know? All right. I have some questions about that. Please. But before that, I want to ask Carolyn and Ruin on something because I've got a sneaking mm. suspicion. Uh, have either of you heard of this, the ghost of Kiev? No. So, and that was a head shake from Carolyn. Now, Matt, I had, and yes. I reckon this might be a gendered truth. I think so too. Oh, no, we're back here again. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, right. Come from this is a can, really like, good connection on this dude's gender, topic. You just can't get away from gender. Yeah, I suspect because, again, like this, <laughs> the war in Ukraine, is a super masculine space, right? Like war is generally super masculine. Then these are two very uh, machismo kind of cultures going at it. And I am sure that with regards to the Ukraine, I am sure that our social media feeds look a lot more similar to that of Ruanan and Carolyn. Now that is, of course, four people. That's not a representative sample size. But I would be curious to see the reporting that Carolyn Ruanan see about this, for instance. Because I suspect you and I are getting very different news stories and things relayed to us. And the information, the news, I I, I paid, paid most of my attention to uh, about refugees who's mm. like trying to get out of U- Ukraine and also about like these female soldiers trying to join the army to fight against the invaders. So, like, in the refugee scene, it's, like, uh, there's racist act, uh, behaviors in uh, during, like, the refugee running away from Ukraine. Like, people of color, like, international students who study or work, or people who work in Ukraine, uh, they try to run away at the same time as the Ukrainians. 
uh, to go to cross a border to Poland or wherever the next country is. And then they got like kind of like refused by the border police or border guards saying that's okay, you need to wait as you need to walk rather than drive, drive through the border. There, like discrimination in that and also so uh, like female soldier another news that I pay attention to is like they are trying to protect their con- own own country just as a masculine male soldier doing even war in general as we discussed is a masculine scene a more masculine scene so maybe because my gender issue and the mind focus I have uh, is like shifted from away from the gender issue a bit more so that's the main focus i had when uh discussing about this uh ukraine issue carolyn yeah what's your news feed look like yeah what in relation to ukraine what is it what does your news feed look like i'm getting very similar uh things to runan i'm also getting uh some transgender stories as well that's interesting i've not seen any i've heard of a couple Mm. of things runan's mentioned not seen it caught anything transgender out of Ukraine. So sim- similar issues. Transgender people not having the gender that they identify as on their official documents, making it very difficult for them to go over borders, especially because of the way that they are presenting themselves. That's a very vice thing uh, that's been all over the vice news feeds this week. But also I actually have some friends in both Russia and Ukraine that I've traveled with. The, what I'm getting from my friends in those areas is one of my very good friends, Vlad, who I traveled with in Korea. He's a coffee person as well. He posted about how he's now, he's a coffee and bartender, coffee person and a bartender, and he posted about how he's making a type of cocktail that he never thought that he'd have to make, which was a Molotov cocktail, and posted photos of that. So he's fighting because he's like a 28-year-old man. Mm-hmm. My friends in St. Petersburg are protesting the war and talking about how little media coverage they are getting. Um, There's a lot of it that is in Russian, so I can't understand it. So that's like a different thing. But yeah, I I would say overall my news feed is less about the violence, except for like the photojournalists that I follow, and more about the stories of refugees. um, And also something that really affected me actually on my TikTok that made me put my phone down for a couple of days was I saw footage of the protests in Russia and there were people being t- taken away by the police for protesting against the war and they were screaming and just their screams were so harrowing and they just really, they just really hit me very, very hard. It was something that I don't think I'll be able to like unsee for a very long time. More harrowing for me than seeing like pictures from like war photojournalists that I follow and stuff on Instagram who are arguably posting more gory, sensitive images. So It's because they know that they're not coming back. Yeah, yeah, that was essentially the subtext of it. They didn't know what was going to happen to them, which is very like Stasi Germany. Yeah, so it's like truth. There's like, personally for me, I don't feel like there's a truth. Truth is something that we could always approach to, but never really touch it. So what is commonly recognized by a group of people is the common sense of this group of people rather than truth. Mm. Yeah, so... Like like the Australian government truth. It's different from China's government's truth. Yeah. Or from the Russia's or Ukraine's or Mm -hmm. whoever's. Mm -hmm. So... Hmm. And, and And you can break that down even further. I mean, 
I suspect, I was going to say something before, but um, like I suspect there are two different true truths battling it out in Russia at the moment. At least there seem to be. I mean, which incidentally is fed back to us differently. I know as, you know, like a good lefty guardian reader, it sounds like all of Russia is up in arms about this Ukrainian thing and all of Russia knows what's going on. And yet I've seen a, at least a few people supposedly in Russia tweeting like, yeah, like some Russians are pretty upset about the Ukraine thing, but honestly, like a lot of Russians support Vladimir Putin and not that often. Which is not only in, in Russia, I guess. It's like it's some other corner uh, in some other parts of the world. People probably are still also celebrating. Mm. Not really celebrating, but like they didn't think, don't think that Russia did something wrong. Or they yeah. don't really care much whether it's right or wrong. But we've seen this before. Like this, that's like what you just described, Alex, is the exact same narrative of the 2020 election. Mm. People were like, oh... Trump is going to uh, going to lose by a landslide. Yet a large majority that was slightly more of a minority than those who voted for Biden, they, like it, that group of people that voted for Trump were much bigger than people anticipated because the coverage was mostly this one specific truth. But still, a large group of people still supported Trump, as I'm sure is a, is the situation in Russia. Absolutely, but it begs the question. I think this is the question of the 21st century. Is how do we reconstruct societal truths? Like I do, I'm not saying everyone has to always think and know the same thing, but I think to kind of exist in the population densities that we currently live, like 4 million plus people in Melbourne, 400,000 people in Canberra, 24 odd million in Australia. Like for those societies to function, it's very hard for them to function without a kind of base level of agreement around what is true. Like, I wonder how a society like Russia, for instance, if it becomes as split and as divided, or the US, I think in this way, the US is better. We've all been wondering how will the, probably more than two, but like, let's say the two halves of America ever kind of... Reconcile. Reconcile and agree on what's true again. Like, there are people who just think the election was thrown, that's that. QED and those who think it wasn't thrown and that's that and QED and like those are such differing ideas of true. I want to mention that's like how much different voices a society should take also. It's like if there's like one choice that is generally accepted by majority uh, of, of one society and then like uh, how much the majority would take of a different voice or, or different different voices. That's something need to be paid paid in attention to as well. Well, as much as I'd love to continue this conversation um, and as scintillating as it was, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. I'd like to thank Alexander DeLoya. Thanks, Matt. Carolyn West. Thank you. And Ruanan Chen. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fulm. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange. Not the Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program email us at 
submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.